This episode of The New Way We Work is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. This is The New Way We Work from Fast Company Magazine, where we take listeners on a journey through the changing landscape of our work lives and explain exactly what we need to build the future we want. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor, Kate Davis. This season on The New Way We Work, we've talked about a few of the things that make for a good job. Fair pay and benefits, a boss who treats you with empathy and respect, an inclusive culture, friendships with colleagues. But there's one aspect of work that's a little harder to pin down. What makes for a meaningful job? Meaningful work, a job that is not just about paying the bills, but is connected to purpose, that makes you feel fulfilled and valuable, isn't just some lofty nice to have. In a tight labor market, it's essential to keeping your employees. In fact, according to a recent Gallup poll, it takes more than a 20% pay raise to lure most employees away from a job where they feel engaged and unsurprisingly, next to nothing to poach disengaged workers. So what makes employees feel engaged with their work and has that changed over the last few years? Here to help me figure out what makes for meaningful work is Dr. David Rock. David is the co-founder and CEO of Neuro Leadership Institute, a cognitive science consultancy that has advised some of the biggest companies. He is also the author of four books, including Your Brain at Work. David, thank you so much for being here. Great to be here with you, Kate. So we all have different ideas about what makes work meaningful, but what can cognitive science tell us about how people either connect or disconnect from finding meaning with their work and what can leaders do to avoid that disconnect? There's a couple of different ways to think about that from the perspective of of how the brain works. Firstly, let me give you an overarching understanding of what the concept of meaningful work is, and then we can kind of dig into maybe kind of how people find different things meaningful and why. Overarchingly, there's a process in the brain for understanding physical tasks. Like if I, if I pick up a, a bottle of drink, as I've just done right now, there's a network in the brain for thinking about the physical movements. Then there's a different network in the brain for thinking about like why you're doing that, right? Which is like, oh, you're trying to quench your thirst. But then the, you, you can keep going up the ladder of construal, it's called. Construal is a funny word, but it's the ladder of kind of abstraction and meaning and purpose. And so, you know, I could be picking up a drink or I could be quenching my thirst or I could be making sure I can communicate really clearly to you know, help people really understand big ideas. That's even higher level of construal. It's more meaning. And so all, all the tasks we have have different levels of construal possible in them, right? When you, you know, there's a classic story in construal research about the, the janitor at NASA who was really motivated and, and when asked why, it's, you know, because he said he was helping put man on the moon. He's not just sweeping the floor, right? He's putting man on the moon. And so what happens in the brain is the network, there's, there's actually a network for physical tasks and like literally movement, right? There's a network for planning movement, but there's actually a, what's called a, a, in lay, lay person's language, a, a why network, like why you're doing something. And this network doesn't necessarily activate when you're doing a task. You know, if you're just sweeping a floor, you may not be thinking about putting man on the moon. But what lots of research has shown is that when an activity has this meaning network involved, this why network, uh, people are more engaged in the activity, they're more flexible in the activity. You know, if you know you're helping put man on the moon, right, you're much more likely to find creative solutions to, you know, to problems. People are more, more resilient as well when they have this why network. 
just you know overall more effective. It's actually a real thing in the brain to think about why you're doing something versus how you're doing it, versus the you know the specific instructions minute minute to minute. So think of those as three quite different kind of cognitive processes: why you're doing something, how you're doing it, and then literally the you know specific instructions moment to moment for movements. And what we see from lots and lots of research is the higher you go up the control ladder, the more motivated people are, more resilient. More flexible, more adaptive, but it does tie directly to motivation, and this has been borne out in long-term studies as well with real people, not just looking inside the brain. That when when you have this meaning, you have a greater sense of intrinsic motivation. So that's that's a way to think about meaning overall and the brain. It's really about construal level. So when you mention that, and that's you know when people think about what makes work meaningful, it's exactly you know one of the biggest things is exactly that feeling a connection to the the bigger purpose of the organization or the bigger goals. But that can be really difficult. I mean that that example of the janitor like that for a lot of people is a big leap, and I think for a lot of people in their jobs, especially when they're bogged down in the day to day and the meetings and all of that, like it's very difficult to connect it to a bigger, more meaningful purpose. How can a manager or a leader bring that meaningful purpose and connect everybody's overwhelming tasks in a lot of situations to a bigger purpose like that? Yeah, it's interesting. So the more that uh, a manager, for example, of a team creates what are called shared goals, like the more a manager creates shared goals, the more they create this sense of in-group between that team. Right now, that's a really important thing because when you have this sense of in-group, you have much deeper collaboration but at a like at a really deep level you just have people actually processing more accurately everything you know coming from each other so when when you have this sense of shared goals your brain literally pays more attention and processes more accurately compared to if you feel like you have competing goals with someone you you process using a whole different brain network if you feel like you've got competing goals so if a, if a manager can continually bring, bring people to shared goals you're getting this fantastic benefit of you know, more accurate sharing of information, more accurate perception, better collaboration, and good motivation. It creates a positive you know, motivational response as well. So the, the most motivating shared goal would be something where you know, there's really deep meaning. You know, I walked into Medtronic, who we, we've worked with for a long time, and you know, on their wall when I walked into their headquarters, when we all used to travel, I, I remember seeing you know, we, we save... 25 lives a minute or something like that. Crazy. I don't remember the actual number, but literally on their wall was the number of people whose lives were saved every minute by their devices. And that for me was like, wow, that's really tangible, right? But, you know, if you're providing power to, uh, you know, Arizona, you might not have that bigger purpose that you can bring people to. But what we see is that if you can bring people up to the why day to day, you create this shared goal and you create this flexibility and this resilience in people. And it doesn't have to be this, you know, really big, lofty, you know, save the world goal. It, it just it just can't be, you know, you're doing this task, but there's really, it doesn't connect to anything. So you want, you want to find how tasks connect to other tasks and what the, you know, what the objective is. But it, it should be even like a meeting to meeting thing. You know, you should, every interaction you have with a team, you know, the, the team lead should be, you know, should be creating this sense of why you know, here's what we're here to do for this hour. And if you if you don't have a clear why for that meeting, then you're probably not going to have a very efficient meeting in comparison, right? So so it's it's really like, 
you know, interaction to interaction. And then at the level of like, you know, hey, this week, this is what we're trying to achieve. This month, this is what we're trying to achieve. So the clearer people are about the purpose of something, uh, the, the more effective they're going to be constantly, the more flexible and adaptive they will be. But, you know, the best one is, you know, of course, these lofty things, but you can't always do that. Not every company saves the world. It makes me think of, you know, I'm a parent and I, I think about this a lot of like the old cliche of like, why are you doing this? Because I say so. Like, it's not just because I say so, it's because here are the reasons and here's what it connects to. And then, you know, it makes more sense. The, the drudgery, if it's drudgery or a task you don't like, like, you know, it makes sense because it's serving something else. You know, you you also have, um, and I'd love for you to to get into your the scarf model, the status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, and fairness. Um, how that assessment works, how it relates to meaningful full work, and how companies and, and individuals can kind of use that. Yeah. So thanks, Kate. Scarf is a big idea. I started working on in in like two thousand and three, um, and eventually published in two thousand and eight. Um, and published a number of papers on it. And it's now a framework that uh, many, many organizations use. You know, it's used right across Microsoft and, and many firms as, as a way to think about motivation and inclusion and psychological safety and engagement. It's really the, it's, it's the primary colors of, of why people do what they do in a social context. Uh, and it's, it's kind of a development on um, intrinsic motivation theory, Jesse and Ryan's work around kind of people looking for certain things. And it I wasn't trying to build a model. What happened was I was I was working on a book, Your Brain at Work, and interviewing a, a couple dozen scientists. And I kept hearing a really similar message coming out from these different scientists who were studying the brain and, and kind of doing these new studies. And this was like 15, 20 years ago now. But there's all these new studies coming out saying things like, oh, you know, when people feel treated fairly, it activates the reward center, you know, as much as being given money or chocolate. It's, you know, it's surprising just you know, being treated fairly is intrinsically rewarding or, you know, feeling like you're, you're doing better than someone else also activates a reward network and, and feeling like you're part of a community or part of a group of people activates a reward network. And SCARF basically describes what's going on in our interactions all the time. And essentially what happens is we're always trying to avoid a negative SCARF issue. So like feeling like your status is being attacked is, is a threat response, right? A negative thing or feeling more uncertain about an issue is a negative response, or feeling lack of control, right, is autonomy, um, or feeling like someone's attacking you personally, that's, that's negative relatedness, um, and then fairness. So each of the domains can be negative or positive. Generally, the negative is much stronger, right? So, you know, if you walk into a meeting and say to someone, you know, you're an idiot, you can't balance that out with just telling them why they're an idiot, you know, giving them more certainty on the other side, right? It doesn't really work. So the negatives are stronger. You imagine a seesaw where each of those five scarf domains can either be on the left or the right, and the left is you know negative and heavy. So if you you know if you take away control from someone, you might have to balance that out with a lot of fairness and a lot of certainty, and maybe some other things like you know shared goals. So what's happening is in our interactions, we are constantly like mapping these issues like second by second. We're built to minimize pain and maximize pleasure. That's, that's kind of the brain's organizing principle. So we unconsciously stay away from situations where we might look bad, or we might be uncertain, we might feel like others are controlling us, you know, and we steer towards situations where we feel like we look good. And you find people who are a little bit, I think they call it vertically challenged, I'm allowed to say, and you find they often 
have other ways of standing out. You know, they're funnier or smarter or they work hard in other ways because it's kind of painful to feel literally shorter than other people. It's actually a status threat in a weird way. And so they, they you know, offset that pain in other ways. So this shows up everywhere. But, you know, to get back to your point, there's research showing that extrinsic rewards like money are not in and of themselves very rewarding until we assimilate them into intrinsic motivations. And Scarf really describes the five intrinsic motivations. And so when you're like, you know, you're trying to create meaning for someone, you're talking to one person who, for them, uh, they're really passionate about autonomy. Like they love to feel in control. They love it when they have choices, right? So that person, like meaningful work is, you know, when they get to be more in control, right? They get more choices. But someone else, their scarf domains are different. Like they, and we've got data from tens of thousands of people now on this, that people have different kind of scarf priorities, right? So one person might have autonomy, but someone else might have relatedness, right? And so for them, meaningful work is when they get to feel really connected to people and helping other humans, right? Whereas the autonomy person might be about, you know, when they get to help themselves. A fairness person might find something meaningful when they really increase the sense of fairness around them. You know, a status person, you know, different. So, so what we see is that meaningful work is different for different people. And it's based on, from our perspective anyway, it's based on the way people are built. It's relatively static through their lives in terms of which of these five domains really, uh, really matter to them. So that's the biggest story. So SCARF is the, it relates to meaningful work, but also relates to inclusion, engagement, you know, psychological safety, and just motivation generally as well. As a manager, I can imagine if you have that information and you know, you know, what motivates your employee, if it's autonomy or if it's relatedness or if it's status or fairness or certainty, then you can kind of manage to that, right? And you know, you know what they prefer, but how do you figure that out? Is there a way to figure out what kind of matters the most to your employees? Yeah, it's, it's frighteningly easy, actually. Once you kind of play with the model a little bit, you start seeing it everywhere right? Like you, you learn about this, you know, just reading an article or a quick training or something and you start to see it and you'll get into a taxi and you'll give like slightly too many instructions to the driver and he'll snap at you or you'll go, oh, whoops, autonomy reaction, right? And you'll, you know, your, your teenager will yell at you because you asked them to clean up their room and you'll say, oh, there, there's another autonomy reaction, you know? So you start to see this. It's, it's scary. It's a bit like Neo in the Matrix when he started seeing all the data at the end of the, the original Matrix. Like, you really start to see these things in people, like on their faces and in their language pretty quickly. It's uh, a lot of the challenges between managers and their teams is actually mismatched motivational styles that managers are not aware of. So for example, a manager who likes autonomy, and by the way, the higher you go in an organization, the more people are rewarded by autonomy. You know, if you have a room full of CEOs, like 100 CEOs, you're going to find 90 of them or more have autonomy as their biggest driver. If I have a room full of of HR people, that's not the case at all. They're like a third autonomy, a third fairness, a third relatedness. And we've seen this over time. So, so you have this situation where a manager's, you know, really motivated by being in control and being left alone. And that's how they automatically manage their people. They assume that their people also want that. But if that manager has a team member that likes certainty, right, that person's going to be like, why aren't you giving me the certainty I need? you know, tell me what actually I need to do, give me, you know, more information, or they want relatedness, they're going to be like starving for, you know, connection with that manager. So, you know, we, we have a free assessment online, I don't, don't even know the URL for it, it's, it's easy, just look up SCARF assessment. So we have a free assessment online people can do. But even just kind of reading about this, you start to see it. 
Um, and it's, it's kind of scary how pervasive it starts to be. This episode of The New Way We Work is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. That's a really good point, though, that people, I mean, and it makes total sense, right, that CEOs, a room full of CEOs would be, they're autonomous. They would prefer they to work alone. That's how, you know, to be independent. That's how they got, you know, partly of how they got where they are. But it's an interesting point that you make that, and I think this is how a lot of people act in the world is you treat people how you like to be treated, but that's not necessarily how they like to be treated. I'm interested to hear too, you know, as you were saying, the kind of analogy of the the seesaw and like how we it weighs more to the negative in times of uncertainty, for example, like <laughs> the last two plus years, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, when, when it's kind of the environment, not so much your company or your management, but the environment itself weighs too negatively on one you know, do you, you balance it by weighing more heavily on the other? And I'm thinking of, there's a lot of uncertainty in the world as there has been a lot of the reaction from managers has been to like micromanage, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know what you're doing. You're not in front of me anymore. I'm going to micromanage. Would the better balance be to give more autonomy? Yeah, it's a really important question. So, you know, the start of this pandemic was really, really difficult for a lot of people because we had this huge drop in certainty in just about everything that mattered. But we also had this drop in autonomy, a feeling of control. And what we normally do when things are uncertain is we lean in and try to control the situation. But that we couldn't do that. And what we normally do when things are uncertain and we can't control the situation is we get together with other people and connect with our humans and try to like baddie together. That, like that's, you know, that's the next thing. And we couldn't do that also. So it, it really felt like pain, you know, for, for a long time. And um, one of the one of the silver linings of the last few years for a lot of people was this unexpected control over many, many things they'd never had control over, right? So the obvious thing is people had control over like, you know, when they worked a bit more, you know, some companies manage it. They had control over where they worked a lot more. You could work at home, you could work in the backyard, you could work in a cafe and, you, you know, you weren't stuck in one place. So, but you also had control now over your sleep patterns that you could manage differently, right? Without all that commuting. You also had control of your diet because you were eating in one place. You had more control of your exercise patterns and your social life. And even, you know, if you were a germaphobe of your intake of, you know, germs, like we had this really universal broad increase in what we could control in our environment. Now, this was, this was a big silver lining that helped a lot of people, you know, get through this time. And what we see is that increasing autonomy or control is very rewarding. But taking control away is even more threatening than giving it is rewarding. Okay, so if you're like trying to force people back into the office, as some CEOs are doing, you're likely to get strong pushback. And we're seeing interesting data on that, anywhere from kind of 40 to 70% of people saying they're just going to look for another job if forced back into the office, right? So autonomy is this really fascinating thing where just giving people a little bit of autonomy ends up being really surprisingly powerful for productivity, engagement, performance, this kind of thing. And um, it even like in one study, uh, this is an old study now, but giving some people in a retirement home three fairly trivial choices uh, halved the death rate over time for, the, for, for that group compared to a control group. And we see other studies where letting people like personalize their cubicle made them a day a week more productive, which is crazy, right? How would just, you know, being able to put some art in your cubicle make you a day a week more productive than others? But it turns out that people feel really, really happy when given a bit more control than they expected. 
but equally so really, really, really unhappy when that control is taken away, right? So obviously there are some industries and companies where people kind of need to be back in the office. That's one thing. But overall, this is a time to continue to find ways to give people a little more control than they thought they were going to have. Like it's a really good tool as a company and a manager to continue to give people as much control as you possibly can. And I'll tell you a quick story on this, but if you want to know what stocks to buy, the answer might be none right now. But if you think about any stocks to buy, I would buy stocks in this company that makes the mouse jiggler that moves your mouse around while you're out in the backyard, um, you know, doing your yoga so that it, your boss thinks that you're working, right? You can, there's literally a device that moves your mouse for you because something like 20% of companies bought this surveillance software when they went work from home in 2020. And, and I think it's just so, it's such an attack on your sense of status and fairness and autonomy. Uh, people find it really insulting to feel like, you know, they're being watched the whole time. So I, I think you got to be really careful of that, you know, that attack. Um, now, the opposite of a surveillance mindset is an outcomes mindset, right? So instead of like, you know, I want you to report every day on everything you've done, it's more like I want you to tell me every week what you're, what you're trying to achieve and what your goals are. And then at the end of the week, let's talk about how you won, you know, where you did well and what you still need help with. And let's you know, have a learning conversation, a growth mindset conversation about that. So instead of the surveillance mindset, you want to shift to the outcomes mindset, which gives you a shared goal with your team, right? So now with that shared goal, you've got, again, in-group and better collaboration and all of this. So, so I think it's a really important time for companies to, in some ways, double down on the autonomy that they give people. Don't take it away right now. Um, and even if you're forcing, if not forcing, if, you're, you know, if you need people back in the office for some kind of reason, find out how you can do that in a way that gives people a little more control than they thought they were going to have any way you can. And that's really a common thread that we've heard throughout this season of the podcast and many different people that I've spoken to about return to office and that sort of thing. We talked about what makes a good manager and what makes a bad manager and this overarching theme you know, micromanagement is the number one thing that comes up. But as you mentioned, it touches on more than just autonomy. It's, you know, a sense of fairness. If you're having surveillance software on your computer, that does not feel very fair. That certainly attacks your feeling of status. You don't feel like you have very much status if you're not even trusted to when you're doing your work. But, you know, the outcomes mindset too of the, like, I don't care if you're at your computer at this exact time a day. What I care about is the work that you do. To your point of having this, you know, we heard this earlier on, on the show as well, like having that conversation with employees about why they're resisting coming back to the office. And if it's something solvable, like I want to be there for school pickup, like, okay, well, you can, you know, leave at 3 p.m. every day, no problem. You know, then you you have that relatedness, you have that autonomy over and like control over your life still. And these are small things that don't, you know, impact the bottom line, that don't like change your business, but like especially in a tight talent market, right? Like keep people happy and keep them there. I want to go back to something you said just to kind of explain the surveillance and outcomes mindset a little more. It's interesting when you think about managers. So for a manager who's used to kind of being in the office and, and overseeing their team. In the office, they've got a feeling of status, right? When they don't see their team, that sense of status is gone. They're like, they, they don't have that feeling of power, right? They also have a really good sense of certainty in the office of what people are doing, even though they don't actually know, but it's a feeling of certainty. Whereas out of the office, they've got a feeling of uncertainty. They also have a feeling of autonomy, of being in control, right? They can just call a snap meeting instead of you know scheduling a meeting three days later. So you know, status 
and certainty and autonomy and even relatedness. They've got a sense of connection with people they don't have virtually. So for the manager, they're actually experiencing three or four threats out of SCARF when they think about letting their people work anywhere. So it's not surprising that they feel literally uncomfortable about letting people you know, work anywhere. The employee, on the other hand, you know, when allowed to work anywhere, feels a you know, bump in, in status, a bump in certainty, a bump in autonomy, um, and a bump in fairness. Uh, and you know, if forced back in, again, you have now a big drop in probably all of the domains. As you sort of think about this through the scarf lens, it, it becomes kind of easier to see what's going on and, and think about ways to, uh, to address this. What can a manager do then? I mean, that does make perfect sense. I mean, you think, you know, I, I was thinking the other day about how all of the old kind of status symbols don't matter anymore, right? There's no corner office to denote that you are the boss because we're all, you know, working remotely. How how do you, as a manager, make up for all of those deficits then and, and make yourself feel better and more connected to your work? Yeah, it's, you know, it's a good question. And if you if you just have perfunctory meetings with no one on camera, you're going to feel pretty out of the loop and pretty out of control. So I think it's really important to leverage the upside of platforms. And the upside of platforms, you know, firstly, is that they can actually be really intimate. I mean, you're really looking at each other directly. Sometimes you're in someone's, you know, bedroom even. Like, it's, it's quite intimate and personal. If you have camera on, you can hear each other clearly and you're not multitasking. You know, you're, you're eye to eye with someone, right? So it's intimate. Um, secondly, you can connect with anyone anywhere um, and you can do that briefly and you can do that frequently. So the, the, these are upsides that don't really occur in the, in the physical world. So a good manager is going to leverage the upside of these platforms and make sure they're having, you know, face-to-face in, you know, inverted quotes, face-to-face interactions with people, you know, a few times a week and making sure those are still really human interactions that, you're, you know, you're looking to each other's eyes and asking, how are you? And, and so I think it's a little easy to kind of switch off the camera and, you know, have these perfunctory meetings. But I think you're going to really lose a sense of connectedness and certainty and, you know, autonomy pretty quickly. But if you keep that connectedness and, you know, connect briefly, maybe a you know 15 minute interaction twice a week, for example, just a quick check in, you can maintain that sense of connectedness, maybe even more than you would uh, you would in person. So I think I think there's ways you can get around that. So you've talked a lot about camera on and, and meetings and, and that sort of environment. Wondering what kind of probably everybody or a lot of a lot of people listening are moving towards a hybrid work environment where some people will be in the office at some point during the week, some people won't be, you know, in whatever combination. How do you address those kind of challenges of keeping people engaged and part of their work if they are the people who are remote, if they are the people who are not in the office, you know, having those those relationships? Yeah, I mean, it's a relatively simple answer to that. It just doesn't sound very good, but it's much less bad than the alternative. So the bad alternative, you know, what you think of as a mixed meeting, right, where you have people in a room, you know, joking and having side conversations and talking over each other. And then you have people on the phone, worse, or even if they're on camera, feeling really left out, you know, not engaged in the conversation, chatting with each other, stuff that people can't see in the room. Uh, it's terrible. And we really don't want to go back to that. The other thing is when you have these mixed meetings, you have a huge amount of what's called distance bias, which is, you know, e- even if someone out of the room has a good idea, it's devalued compared to an idea that's expressed in the room. It's weird. So, so you have this distance bias and, and people feel not included and all this stuff. So that's a bad idea. Now, the less bad idea still sounds bad, 
but it's just much less bad. And we call it one virtual, all virtual. And so one virtual, all virtual is like, hey, if you're all in the office, great, me, you know, you don't need a platform. But if even one person is out of the office, you know, online, you're all now on a platform. So everyone can see each other equally well. Everyone can hear each other equally well. And everyone can use the chat, which is, as you get good at it, actually saves a lot of time as you use the chat. Um, you can get, you do what we call parallel processing with everyone, you know, sharing ideas at the same time and then, you know, reading them at their pace. So it's an awful sounding idea, but in practice, it's much, much better than the alternative. So, you know, my tip would be get really good at virtual meetings because they're here to stay and get good at making them efficient, but also really effective and, you know, leverage the upside of these platforms, which includes the digital chat functions. Um, the fact that everyone can be in a shared document, you know, working on it together. I have a bias in my company. We're about 220 people full time. We're very spread out across the globe, really, you know, EMEA, APAC and North America. And we went hybrid a few years before the pandemic because we found that when we did consulting that way, we actually did better work. We were kind of forced into consulting that way because a lot of our clients had people everywhere, right? So we, we, you know, we started doing consulting with these big global companies and just found when we designed the consulting sessions well, uh, it was a much richer, more inclusive, more effective way to work than meeting in person. And you know, not even taking into account the fact that you could get the exact right people frequently and all that. So we. We, we ended up shifting the whole company to this practice of, you know, all meetings are virtual meetings. And we found that suddenly we could hire the best possible person, not the best possible person within an hour of an office. And our hiring got better. Our diversity got better because we could hire not just from expensive zip codes. Um, the work got better. People were more sustainable. And we still had a bunch of people who wanted to come to the office. We said, great, come to the office if you want to come to the office. And so, you know, I think the natural setting point for that, we did some research on this about a year ago, the sort of set point for that was about a third of people are really passionate about working from home forever. And it's going to be hard to nudge those people out of that. About a third of people want to be mixing it up. They're happiest if they're, you know, most weeks mixing it up between the office and home. And about a third of people are really passionate about being back in the office full time, right? And why would we want to kind of punish any of those groups by forcing them into one category? You know, if you force people into the mixing it up, you're punishing, you know, either either side of this. Right now, though, I'll just give you a qualifier. Right now, the number of people who want to be in the office full time is more like five to 10%. So it dropped a lot. And I think it's the variance and just kind of the exhaustion people have. They're just not wanting more change. But I think it'll come back up in time to settle into something like a third, a third, a third, which we saw for a few years. And that makes perfect sense. And that, you know, relates back to obviously what you're saying about autonomy, letting people work where they feel the most comfortable and get the most work done. And one virtual, all virtual definitely makes sense. And and it is, you know, there are benefits to these platforms, as you mentioned, being able to collaborate on, on documents and, and that sort of thing. So David, one final question before we go, you know, if there's one kind of takeaway that both managers and employees could have from this, what's the kind of mindset that they should be going into thinking about the next phase of work, the next, you know, phase of uncertainty, but also just, you know, what, what makes a meaningful job and, and what kind of mindset should they be in for that? I think there's kind of two mindsets in a way that are a little bit linked. One one is called the, the Stockdale Paradox, which is uh, an idea that was popularized in Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, initially. And it's a story of, of um, a, um, a, a Navy colonel who was the most senior officer in a prisoner of war camp in Vietnam. And what he, what he found is that the people who were overly optimistic kind of crashed and burned when their hopes were dashed. And the people who were you know, overly pessimistic 
never did anything and to make things better and kind of also crashed and burned. And the people who survived in a really long-term, really difficult situation had this sort of strange cognitive gymnastics going on in their brain where they believed that ultimately things would probably work out for the best, but they accepted that things were going to be really tough and probably really tough for a long time. And then they got to work to work out how to make things just a little bit better. And that third step is important. You can't do that if you feel like the sky's falling all the time and it's all going to end badly. And you won't do that if you're just, you know, hopeful. But this middle ground of sort of imagining things will eventually work out, but accepting that things are going to be pretty hard and pretty hard for a really long time. This sets you up to be able to have the second mindset that, that is important, which is technically known as a growth mindset, which is, you know, not trying to get anything perfect, not trying to look good, but just looking to get better, looking to experiment, looking to just focus on progress, not perfection, being really, really, really willing to try new things. And so that's an idea. It was popularized out of the academic literature from the 70s and 80s by Carol Dweck in her book, Mindsets. She's well known for that in working in education. We've taken that work to organizations, including Microsoft and Procter & Gamble and a bunch of others, and, and taken this concept of growth mindset to you know the masses. And it turns out to be a really, really important thing for dealing with a lot of change, right? Just, you know, stop trying to look good and just focus on getting better um, as an example. So it's the mind, it's sort of two mindsets. One is kind of, you know, imagine this is going to work out eventually, but, you know, sit back, it's going to be a ride. And then, you know, what can you do to really experiment, really open your mind up about making things a, a little bit better today? That, that that seems to be the two mindsets right now. That's a, that's a great way to think about it. And it, it kind of makes me think of something that I always tell myself when things are uncertain and, and difficult is nothing is ever going to be as good as you hope or as bad as you fear. It's usually going to be somewhere in the middle, right? Yeah. Um, David, thank you so much for being here. This is such an interesting conversation. Yeah, lots to say. Thanks so much for the invitation. It's great to be here with you. And that's all for this episode. If you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to The New Way We Work wherever you listen. And if you like this episode, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And we want to hear from you. What makes your job meaningful? Email us at podcast at fastcompany.com or tweet us with the hashtag The New Way We Work. The New Way We Work was produced by Joshua Christensen with editing by Nicholas Torres. 